Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, episode 12, a novel by Ed Adams. Mesopotamian heritage. Tell me about El Akhtar, asked Claire to Chuck. He must know more about their origins. Yes, it's deeper than Al-Aktar and goes back to the Iraqi mindset, replied Chuck. The Al-Aktar people had thoughts which went back much further than the war driven by George Bush. This group believed themselves to be part of the Iraqi Mesopotamian heritage, which was home to the Sumerian culture, dating back to 5000 BC. So these should be smart people with some of the first sciences and mathematics originating from the cradle of civilization. Wow, it's a long way back, added Bigsy. Chuck continued. Later came Islam, with the Prophet Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law moving his capital to Kufa, fi al-Iraq, when he became the fourth caliph. That's the start of the rise of Baghdad, questioned Claire. Chuck answered, yes, this led to Baghdad being the leading city of the Arab and Muslim world for five centuries. But then, as early as the mid-13th century, Baghdad was devastated by the Mongols and later occupied by the Ottoman Turks. Such conflict would become a facet of this area, but the Ottoman Empire lasted right the way through until World War I, when the Ottomans sided with Germany and were later driven from the area by the United Kingdom. For true Ottomans, this was only a short time to remember, and British control of Mesopotamia with the United Nations mandate created a lasting sense of colonial rule. Yes, that's more the period that I know about, said Big Z, Iran under British rule. Chuck continued. Occupation would be a better word. During the British occupation, the country was ruled by British administrators who used British armed forces to put down rebellions against the government. They selected the Hashemite king, Faisal, who had been forced out of Syria by the French to be their client ruler. Between World War I and II, Iraq was granted independence, though the British retained military bases and transit rights for their forces in the country. King Ghazi of Iraq ruled as a figurehead after King Faisal died in 1932, while Iraq suffered from military coup until he died in 1939. This was all about the oil, asked Claire. Yes, said Chuck. This led to the start of the fears of oil cutbacks, and Iraq was again invaded by the United Kingdom in 1941, fears that the government of Rashid Ali might cut oil supplies to Western nations, and because of his strong leanings to Nazi Germany. <clears throat> Tricky, said Bigsy. Chuck continued, you could say that a military occupation followed after the restoration of the Hashemite monarchy, and this lasted until 1947. This reinstalled monarchy lasted until 1958, when it was once again overthrown through a coup d'etat by the Iraqi army, known as the 14th of July Revolution. The coup brought Brigadier General Abdul Karim Qasim to power. He withdrew from the Baghdad Pact and established friendly relations with the Soviet Union, but his government lasted only until 1963, when it was overthrown by Colonel Abdul Salam Arif. I think we must be nearly up to Saddam Hussein's era, asked Claire. Lisa nodded. Chuck continued. That's right. After Salam Arif's death, his brother Abdul Rahman Arif assumed the presidency, but was soon overthrown by the Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party. This movement gradually came under the control of Saddam Hussein al-Majid al-Tikriti, who acceded to the presidency and control of the Revolutionary Command Council, that was the RCC, then Iraq's supreme executive body, in July 79, 
killing off many of his opponents in the process. Saddam Hussein's rule lasted through the Iran-Iraq War, in which the United States, Soviet Union and France backed Saddam Hussein after 82, at least in the open, and it was a war that ended in stalemate. That backing of Hussein was because of oil, asked Claire. Yes, the strategic importance of the region, answered Chuck. In the late 1980s, Saddam Hussein's regime launched the so-called Al-Anfal campaign. It means spoils of war, which led to the disappearance of tens of thousands of Kurds. 182,000 is the number given by the Kurdish authorities. That was just for the year 1988. In northern Iraq, when the military raised thousands of villages, launched poison gas attacks and rounded up men, women and children before shooting them or burying them alive in mass graves. Note the poison gas used this time, said Chuck. It was instrumental in firing up new research by other countries. Yes, said Elisa. Although there's a couple of aspects. There were some countries that had buried their research in deep cover. Other countries thought they would need some kind of R&D capability for pure defensive measures. Chuck continued. Then in 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait, resulting in the Gulf War and the United Nations economic sanctions imposed at the urging of the US. It left the US in something of a quandary, having backed Hussein previously but now forced to turn against him. The economic sanctions were designed to compel Saddam to dispose of weapons of mass destruction. By that we mean the chemical and nerve agent weapons. Critics estimate that between 400,000 and 800,000 Iraqi children died as a result of the sanctions. The US and UK declared no-fly zones over Kurdish northern and southern Iraq to oversee the Kurds and southern Shiites. Iraq was invaded in March 2003 by a US-organised coalition with the stated reasons that Iraq had not abandoned its nuclear and chemical weapons development programme according to the United Nations resolutions. The justifications given for invasion included purported Iraqi government links to al-Qaeda, claims that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, the opportunity to remove an oppressive dictator from power, and the bringing of democracy to Iraq. That was all over the media, of course, said Claire, but many people suspected that it was misleading. Yes, said Chuck, a range of other possible motives include control over Iraqi oil fields, a desire to make amends for failing to overthrow Saddam during the Gulf War, revenge for Saddam's efforts to assassinate former President George Bush and creating a counterbalance to a nuclear-armed Iranian theocracy. There was even a theory that the war generated business for the US based on reconstruction contractors, added Bigsy. Chuck nodded and then continued. Subsequent post-invasion investigation didn't uncover any evidence that the WMD programs were active, although some chemical shells were found that were left over from the Iran-Iraq war. Likewise, Al-Qaeda had no presence in Iraq, where it had been suppressed by the secular Iraqi government, until after the invasion when it exploited the insurgency to establish its organisation in the country. What about the rumours that America had WMDs stashed in Saudi Arabia and was going to plant them in Iraq, asked Bigsy. Well, there's no evidence of that either, said Chuck, although these recent neurotoxin findings make me begin to wonder. Chuck continued, The US established a coalition provisional authority to govern Iraq. Government authority was transferred to an Iraqi interim government in 2004, and a permanent government was elected in January 2006. And by 2006, over 140,000 coalition troops remained in Iraq in order to assist the government in countering a Sunni-led insurgency frequently 
terrorist attacks and sectarian violence which plagued the country. Then in 2006, the foreign policy magazine named Iraq as the fourth most unstable nation in the world. I guess that is around when Al-Aqtar decided it was time to make their statements and to recover what they considered to be the state of Mesopotamia. Chuck's involvement. Chuck asked Jake, How come you're fighting the good fight alone on this one? You're usually tasked by government. I have a history with this program, answered Chuck. I didn't realise it until Elisa's name came up again, but then I realised that the reason they brought me along was to protect Elisa and because of the biological work that they were doing. Elisa isn't the only one, but the fact is there's a set of scientists that have been kept on retention alongside the continuation of the bioweapon research. I hadn't realised it, but by helping Elisa, I was also helping preserve this bioweapon threat. This is my way to settle things and clear up a mess. So are you acting independently, asked Claire. Yes, well that is, I'm acting with you if you will happen to support me. So not for a government or a paymaster, and the end result is that the biohazard is destroyed, asked Claire. Correct. This is one of my completely self-run missions, and for the record, Chuck's Mission Guide 101 says don't do self-run missions. That's why I need to keep it close. No one will know any of you. Apart from the original triangle connection, we've never been in contact. And we're not in danger, asked Big Z. You should be okay. I will be in danger, said Chuck, and the end result will be the removal of the threat. Completely. What are we supposed to do, asked Jake. Chuck continued. There will be a meeting, a sort of trade show, where the owners of the weapon state their terms. It will be set up to look like an innocuous event, just that the people there will be special. I'd like you to go along and listen out for what is happening. It shouldn't be too difficult. I'll have some entertainment and that will make it easy for us to get electronics in. We could provide the entertainment, said Claire. We have the media contacts and I could pull some strings to get in front of the line. It'd be with Christina Knott, who is a singer in any case. If you can help us find out how they intend to run this, then we can hook into the event management. Chuck looked confused. Jake had never seen this before. It's not really my area, said Manners. No, but it is ours, answered Claire. Let me get on to it. Do you need time to consider this, asked Manners. We should. We need to know that Christina Knott is prepared to be in on it. Give us until tomorrow, said Claire. Does Jake know how to contact you? Put an entry on your website, said Chuck. Mention the word square if it's a go, or circle if it's a no-go. I can do that, said Bigsy. It'll be the top article on the home page. By tomorrow, please, said Chuck, and then we will follow the process I've described to Jake. Basically, that I'll get a phone call with some instructions, answered Jake. Correct, said Chuck. And you know what? The coffees and pastries are on me. He stepped to the cash till, paid and waved to them, still seated. They returned the gesture, slightly surprised at Chuck's sudden speedy exit. Man of action, even when eating cakes, quipped Jake. Bixie grinned as he finished the last mouthful of Claire's chocolate dream cake. I told you this was large, said Bixie. The cake, I got it for you, said Claire. Jake turned to Claire and Bixie. Oh, what do you think? This one seems crazier than ever. Yes, Chuck doesn't live a dull life, does he? Answered Bixie. But he does have a twinkle in his eye when he asks us for help. I think he likes us, said Claire. As she left the cafe. Oh, that's good to know. What could possibly go wrong? Answered Jake, walking briskly towards the bustling main road. Jake hailed a taxi on the King's Road and the three of them climbed in. Altogether, that wasn't quite what I was expecting, said Jake. 
Chuck Manners doesn't need a very normal life, added Claire. Are we going to do this thing or walk away? asked Lucy. Chuck hasn't mentioned it, but we do sort of owe him, said Jake. Two levels. One, he helped us when we were in deep with that Lucian thing. Two, when the excess money came our way, he knew about it, but has never mentioned it or hassled us. Jake's right, said Claire. We do owe him. And this is one time when he's saying that our role is peripheral. Yeah, I think Chuck will want to keep us out of any rumpus, said Big C. He might know plenty of people who could help him with a fight. They looked at one another. The taxi lurched over a speed bump and they all jumped slightly in the air. You know what, said Bigsy. I have a great news story for the front of our website about squares. They nodded. They were in. Still in the taxi, Claire put in a call to Christina. Christina, I think we may have a gig for you, she said. Although it's not what it seems. Call me back. Two minutes later, Christina was returning the call. I was on the tube. I just picked up your message. Not by phone. Let's meet, said Claire. Claire met Christina to explain the proposition. They would need to provide facilities for an upcoming event. Claire could pull strings so that they were asked to do the work, and Christina would have to perform. It was all short notice, but it would be quite a coup for the organisers to get Christina not along. Birmingham Mailbox District Christina's meeting was scheduled to take place close to one of Birmingham's canals in the proximity of the area called the Mailbox. This up-and-coming area of Birmingham comprised some modern developments along the edge of the major canal infrastructure which cuts through the city. The venue for the meeting was an attractive wine and champagne bar called Epinay, and Christina had arrived early and decided to order a cocktail. Christina chose a comfortable seat close to the window, which would make it easy for all the people she was to meet to spot her when they entered the bar. In the opposite corner and close to the bar was a piano player who was dawdling out some jazzy tunes languorously to the Sunday punters who were sitting drinking exotic cocktails and eating fancy canapes. Christina had arrived alone for the meeting and had busied herself with some email on a notebook PC while she waited the arrival of her contacts. In a slightly irritating way, she had been hit on by two men while she sat waiting, but they were good-natured as she politely explained she was busy and waiting for someone. The piano player had noticed this too and looked across at one point as if to inquire whether Christina wanted any help. Eventually, the music contacts arrived and looked briefly around the bar before spotting Christina and making their way to where she was seated. There were three people, a tall, slender woman with a knee-length leather coat, a flamboyantly dressed blonde head guy with a dark suit jacket, purple shirt and a red waistcoat, and a dark-haired, rugged-looking guy who looked as if he'd just come back from somewhere with unremitting sun. They introduced themselves as Annalisa, Sasha and Douglas and made small talk about the weather in Birmingham and the accessibility of their current location. Whether you drive, take a taxi or bus, the only way here for the last piece is on foot with a good view of everyone else who may be approaching the restaurant, said Sasha. This all sounds like a spy movie, smiled Christina as she prepared to talk about plans for the gig. Actually, Christina, stated Annalisa, we're looking for some other help from you. Christina was intrigued with this and asked what they were talking about. The show we want you to do will be a fairly large group, continued Annalisa, and on this occasion we will take care of all the ticketing. You'll still get a healthy split of the box office. That is, in effect, a private concert. I thought it was a public concert, queried Christina. I'd expect to advertise and get some publicity as a result. We know it's a prestigious venue, replied Annalisa. We have a large group who wish to get together, and your concert provides an ideal back group for their meeting. We can use the event 
to ensure that they all meet and transact a small amount of business with no one noticing that the group also has another interest. Christina fiddled with her glass. She had only one cocktail because she'd wanted to keep a clear head for the meeting. Now she was glad she had because the discussion had the chance to start going a little weird. What are you suggesting? asked Christina. I take it this is legal. Annalisa smiled. Totally legal. We have the challenge to bring a large group together, allow them to swap some information, and just to not create any ripples by being together. Your gig creates a perfect environment for this group of people to meet in a relaxed and entertaining setting. It's very simple, Sasha said. We're creating an event, in effect, a fully sold-out concert. It'll be in a prestige venue, and the majority of the people there will have tickets. So is there any risk to me or anything odd going on at this concert, asked Christina. If it's drugs or anything, then I'm not going to do it. I can walk away now, and it will be as if we've never met. There's nothing illegal or even slightly shady, said Annalisa. We will, though, be using the event as a type of cover for a quite innocent meeting on another topic. I think you've already noticed that the fees are quite interesting. Christina had noticed the fees for this event, and that is what had attracted to to the meeting. It was significantly more than she had received for other appearances, and could be the start of raising her profile. The deal included a well-above-average performance fee, a box split, and even a bar split. Christina was beginning to wish that Claire had been able to attend. Christina said, I'm still interested. Let's talk about the date and the venue as well. I'll need to get my agent Claire to tidy up the details. This is definitely a situation where two heads would be better than one. Here's the plan, said Douglas, flipping open a small computer bag and extracting a couple of sheets of paper stapled together. You'll find the details, including the staging and the attendance numbers, he continued. We'll give you an upfront payment, but if you still need to talk this over with your agent, then we will give you 24 hours to confirm your interest. We can't leave it longer than that, and we will need to find an alternative if you decline. Christina was weighing this up. She liked the idea of an exclusive concert, but had expected to be able to advertise and spread the word. If everyone was being invited to the session, then it may not get advertised or reviewed by the press, which was not ideal. Will there be press at the gig, she asked, expecting that she already knew the answer. It's not very likely, answered Douglas. We will want to keep the event very select. I think you consider it more like a large but private party. We'll also want to vet any production shots or crowd shots. Confidentiality is paramount. OK, said Christina. You'll get an answer from my agent tomorrow. What is it likely to be, asked Annalisa. It will probably be yes, replied Christina, already thinking about how to reach Claire quickly. The three who had met Christina then started to make to leave the wine bar. Sasha graciously paid the bill and the four of them left together. As Annalisa, Sasha and Douglas made their way to turn right from the entrance to the wine bar, Claire walked in the opposite direction, over a short bridge and along a piece of busy canal towpath back towards the city centre. She knew there was something unusual about what she was being asked, but the money being suggested for the gig seemed considerably better than other gigs she had performed. With her current unstable finances, the money would come in very useful. A few minutes later, Christina was on the phone to Claire and recounting the story. Claire agreed it all sounded quite intriguing. When do you get back to London? she asked. We can meet and decide what you want to do. I think you should do it, but maybe ensure that one of us is included in your backup team. Even better if they can sing or play some tunes. Christina hailed a cab from the town centre back to the train station. She'll be back in London in a couple of hours. It had been a strange day. Claire had flipped off her mobile just after the call from Christina and then called Jake. Hi Jake, Christina's got the gig, but they don't want to advertise it. 
It sounds as if something else is happening in the venue and that whoever is running it doesn't want to draw real attention to the situation. This could be something for us to have a look at. Okay, said Jake. Team meeting at the porter. 